This episode was brought to you by Canna Comforts. Canna Comforts was formed to help those in need of an all-natural but effective alternative to prescription drugs. Canna Comforts heals your mind, body, and soul with the finest all-natural products on earth. Be sure you check out the description box for a link to their website and also use code DIARY25 to get 25% off your order. Yo, what's up, y'all? Welcome back to another great episode of Diary of a Mad Black Man. My name is Blake, a.k.a. the Blake the Pop Father. If you didn't already know, check the description box where you can find more information about me, where you can find me in the social media world, all that good stuff. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Princeton Marcellus, who is the artist behind this song that y'all hear playing in the background. This is one of those songs that I listen to to really motivate me, to encourage me, because a lot of times I need to myself just stop and just be like, let me just thank God that I'm still alive. Because out of all the shit that I've survived in this lifetime, like it's literally like when I sit back and really think about it, sometimes like, damn, it's really, truly by the grace of God that I'm still here. Um, And which brings me to today's episode. Um, Today's episode is very, very special. It's one of those life-changing episodes, um, something that I really can't explain over the mic right now, something that I really have to explain more just in my life and how I move forward. Um, So I want to give a huge shout-out to Keisha Barnes. Um, She is a licensed mental health therapist. She is the guest on my show. She's also a published author. Um, She wrote the book called Where's My Tank? You all can use the description box to find out more information about the book. But in this podcast episode today, what you're going to get is a conversation between me and Keisha, really unpacking the book, learning more about the messages behind the book. There are certain things um, and really life lessons that I took away from the book that I'm actively implementing into my real life, like for real, for real. So um, I don't want to give too much of it away, but the premise of it, um, it's like an analogy for how you're taking care of yourself, how much energy you may have, or how much you're filling yourself up. It's really in comparison to a gas tank. So if you think about it, a lot of people out here, I know I am one of them people, I will be out here riding on fumes and a good prayer, good gas light on past E, past the red line, still trying to push it. And it translates to how I live my life and how I take care of myself and my actual fuel for me. What fuels Blake? Where is my tank for Blake? I'm going to keep it 100 with y'all. It is May 10th. It is 6.30 in the evening. And I am behind on publishing episodes. Like, this episode was supposed to come out last month. Um, A part of the reason why I'm behind is because I haven't been filling up my tank. I haven't been filling myself up. Even after I recorded this episode, after I read the book and trying to implement these things, I'm not perfect and it's not going the way I want it to go. But guess what? That's one of the reasons why I chose the intro to the song, which is just thank God that I'm alive. You know, um, I'm going to try not to keep it too much long winded because I want to get y'all into this episode because um, this is a two part episode because it was just so dope. I, I just had to make it into two episodes. There was no way I was going to cut it off. But I guess the main thing I want to say to you guys right now is looking back over my life over the past year and where I was at this point. 
literally this same exact time last year. I was suicidal. I was depressed. I was broke. I didn't know where, you know, the world was going. It was the middle of a pandemic, civil unrest and protests, all types of crazy shit going on. So, you know, I've been beating myself up over the past couple of weeks for not being on top of my podcast, on top of my business, like how I know I could be. But yet I'm also going to step back and give myself grace when I hug myself a little bit because I've overcome a lot. And I recently received a message from one of my listeners who literally said um, this podcast like changed his life, like how powerful it was to to hear my voice and to hear such an off. Actually, I'm going to um, pull it up right now just just so I, so I can read to it. Um, cause I know I'm, I'm a receipts type of guy. I like to go straight to the source. But um, where did that come to, message come to? I, I don't know. I'll, I'll pull it up in another episode. But anywho. Because I told you I get long winded. I'm trying to wrap this up. <laughs> um, I'm going to do a whole another episode just talking about where I've been, why I took this little unexpected hiatus for my podcast with episodes done. Um, it's because my tank wasn't full, y'all. I haven't been taking care of myself, haven't been um, on top of everything like I could. Um, but the blessing of all of this is that I'm nowhere near where I once was. And I cannot even fathom myself being back in that place. I may disappear from this podcast. I may stop posting on social media. I may, you know, change how I do things online or whatever. But in the real world, I'm doing so much better than I ever could imagine. And a part of the what you guys will get in a future episode is why I've been so hesitant to post online about the things that I've been dealing with, because I really don't want to be a burden to people. I really don't want to be that. I don't want to become that guy that's always complaining or just even talking about the struggles that I'm going through, I feel like there's a better way to share them at this point in my journey because it is triggering. And now, now that I'm so super conscious of how I impact other people, I don't want to be a trigger to other people every time they see my post or they think every time they come to the Diary of a Mad Black Man, it's going to be this terrible traumatic thing that I went through, which if you listen to my episodes, there's just not, there's, it doesn't, all that doesn't exist, but it's just been a lot that I've been trying to process lately as the world opens back up, as I continue to elevate, as I continue to go down my healing journey. Um, but again, I'm going to just go ahead and wrap this up because I've been talking way too long. Um, this episode, again, is, again, shout out to Keisha Barnes. It's all about this book, Where's My Tank? Check the description box where you can find it. Super powerful message. I'm not going to say too much. I just going to have to come back for more episodes to hear more about it. But now we're going to get into it with the author, the licensed mental health therapist yeah thank you keisha for joining my show um and be sure y'all come back for part two because this is a two-part series so the first part is really the intro to the conversation and the show that me and keisha did um part two um by the time like right now this moment it's not out but by the end of this week it'll be out so check it out be sure you come back and, and listen to that too so thank y'all for listening to me i feel i realized i just went on kind of a little rant much longer than i wanted to but yeah, let's go ahead and get into the show um, so y'all can hear all this great knowledge and gems that's going to help y'all heal, help y'all continue to grow as well. And it's really just all about community. And see, I'm going on another tangent, so I'm going to be quiet. Here come the show, y'all. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, we are getting into another special 
wonderful, amazing episode today here at Diary of a Mad Black Man. Today, we're going to talk about having balance between being mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically well, and also how to thrive holistically. You know, where's your tank at? And and in a couple of minutes, you're going to know a lot more about what I mean by where's your tank. I have a very special guest here. Her name is Keisha. She is a public speaker, a published author, and a mental health therapist. Um, Her book, Where's Your Tank? Uh, A Strategy for Living a Full Life has changed my life already. Um, It's an amazing book. I'm super excited to have you here, Keisha. So welcome to my podcast. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to be here with me. Thank you so much. I am honored. Yes, yes. So, um, so I feel like I, I know you so much more now just by reading your book. Um, for the people that that may not have read your book, um, just introduce yourself a little bit um, and tell them a little bit more about yourself. All right, I am Keisha Shaw Barnes. I am a country girl from North Carolina. Um, the city I was born in is literally like a little blip on the map. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, one day everybody will know Sedalia, North Carolina. But that is where I'm from. I am a mental health clinician. I've been in the field for a little over 10 years. Uh, that is my absolute passion. In the last year and a half, I became a partner in a mental health agency in Winston-Salem. Uh, I also recently became a published author. I So that's what I do. I love, love, love the Lord. I'm a worshiper. Um, my life's goal is to look like my my daddy and that's my heavenly father. So that's what I try to do. I, I love people really hard because I believe that's just what I'm supposed to do. And I've learned that I do that better through being balanced. Um, as far as my roles, I am a wife. I am a mommy of three beautiful and amazing girls. Um, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a friend. Um, I'm a mentor. I um, dibble and dabble in a lot <laughs> and try mm-hmm. to do my very best at all of them. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're also, I'll add in with something. You're also a change agent because um, what you do, your book has literally changed my life. It's like just the perspective on, um, how you framed this just the message behind where's your tank um but before we get get into the depths of the book because that, that's really where the good stuff is um i want to i want the audience to know a little bit more about you um because i know you said, said you grew up in a small town is it sedalia um north yeah. carolina um tell us about, about your childhood because i know something that um that you shared with me is you grew up in, in a two-parent household and a, a lot of a lot of black people in America don't have that that experience. And you even described it as being a little bit of privilege. So um, share with us what uh, what that experience was like for you. Okay. So, yes, I grew up in a two parent household. My parents were childhood friends. Sedalia literally is like a few streets of a neighborhood. <laughs> so mm. my parents So, it's, grew so it's like one of the I remember um it was like they would call it like stop sign towns or stoplight towns. Yes. Yes. So many, yes, yes, did you, yes. You just have stop signs or did you actually have a stoplight? I feel like when I was growing up there were just stop signs. Now now mm. there are some stoplights, but I really don't quite remember any stoplights when I was growing up to be completely. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um but my parents like they 
my two grandmas were best friends growing up. Um, my parents literally lived like up the street from each other, but in the country, of course, everybody's on like a few acres of land. So up the street is still a little ways, but my dad told my mom at seven years old that he was going to marry her. And Mm. she was inappropriate at the time. And she was like, that's not going to happen. Those weren't her exact words, but that's not going to (laughs) happen. But anyways, Fast forward, they were best friends in high school. Um, Of course, they grew up together, best friends in high school. And when they were, when my dad was in college, my mom had a dream about him. And that's kind of where their love story started. Um, They got married really young. They got married the summer before my dad's senior year of college. And they were married for 42 years. my dad was a truck driver for all of my life. Um, sometimes he was he owned his own business. Other times he worked for other people. Um, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She stayed home until I went to high school. So she was very active and present. So when you say that we, we had a pretty different childhood, like I remember my mom being one of two African-American moms that you regularly saw at school um, just because she had the availability to do that. So my parents, honestly, I idolize their marriage. They have the healthiest marriage I've ever seen. Now, now that I'm married, I've learned that I probably shouldn't have done that, but (laughs) I definitely saw them as extremely healthy. Like they, um, my mom grew up with a single mom because her dad passed away when she was a toddler. So my mom grew up with a single mom. My dad grew up in a household where the marriage wasn't that healthy. So for them to pull off what they did was a miracle because it's Mm. not like they had an example of it. Um, So it was just really healthy. It started out rocky. Um, I love that my parents shared their testimony with us because we did know that it wasn't always perfect, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, we we know that they initially struggled in the beginning of their marriage, but there came a crossroad where my dad had to make a decision whether or not he was going to choose his family or whatever else he wanted to do. And he chose his family. And so mm-hmm. me and my sister, that's a couple of years older, our only experience of him has been him putting his family first. And so I got to live with that for 36, 37 years before he passed away. That that's what I got to live with was, you know, just seeing a strong black man take care of his family, put his family first to a fault, honestly. Um, And we may get into that at some Mm -hmm. point as we talk about the book. But that's what he did. Um, He Mm -hmm. sacrificed for us and we definitely reaped a lot of benefits because of it. Mm, that's beautiful. And and I think that that's very important because I know my my upbringing was not like that. And so I've always been curious as to how that influences people. And um, maybe your, your professional experience can help you this. But what, what do you think are some of the benefit, like the pros and the cons of having that kind of upbringing versus like people who grow up in um, homes that are not as healthy? 
So I think that the pro is you have a standard. I think the mm. pro is that you have a picture of what it can look like, right? I think the downside, and I can only say this for my household, the downside is that we didn't know the total picture. So, you know, I literally grew up in a house where I never saw my parents argue, which a lot of people say, like, that's unheard of. And that sounds very unrealistic. Well, the mm. truth of the matter is, it is unrealistic, right? Like, mm. but we didn't see it. So one of the things that I say said to my parents and that my husband and I constantly discuss with our girls is I need them to see and understand conflict because that's a part of normal relationships, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think the flip side was me and my sister grew up with really with this fantasy idea of what marriage was supposed to look like. It was like, we're not supposed to argue because we didn't see our parents argue. And that didn't happen. Me and my husband was arguing on our honeymoon. So <laughs> yeah. I automatically thought, oh my God, we're broken and there's no way we're going to make it to 40 some years, right? So I think that we had a standard. We had like this blueprint but I don't think that it was ever really explained to us how to make that blueprint our own blueprint based on mm. our personality and, you know, our spouse's personality and that type of thing. So we had a, a lot of I'd like to keep this for my family ideas because there mm. were a lot of things that were really good. Um, but I think I struggled with the things that I needed to let go of that weren't necessarily the best for me and my household and how I want to raise my girls. That's really powerful that you say that. And I, I, and I know somebody that's going to be listening is going to resonate with them because a lot of times I think we as people, we want to either give what we didn't have mm -hmm. or we want to give what we did have that we enjoyed and that we liked. And mm -hmm. a lot of times those things were exclusive to us and our upbringing yes, and yes, yes. like I think about when I have my children or, you know, the way I was raised is not going to be how I should raise my children because we're in a new era. It's a new time. Things are different. Societal views are different. So all these other outside factors that come with um, raising a family are different. And so the times have changed. And it's good that you have kind of, um, again, I always admire people who come from um, really strong um, family structures who know their lineage and things like that, because it's beautiful to know that. And it does give you a sense of identity Absolutely. because you really know who you come from. You guys have family traditions like this is just what me and my people do kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But but also um, it's important, like you said, to understand that each generation is going to be a little bit different. It can't be the same forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so I re really like that. Thank you for sharing that, um, your, your personal background about your family and stuff. I think it's really uh, powerful for, for people to kind of share their stories, especially being a mental health professional, um, to also understand that, you know, you had um, a, a different childhood, just like everybody else. Your childhood is unique. Mm -hmm. And um, I really want to get into this book now because the book actually um, begins um, with the passing of your father. And, and I felt like it was very powerful for you to open this book up with such a vulnerable and transparent um, experience that you went through. And, and um, again, my condolences to you. I can only imagine what it may be like um, after so many years. Um, and so can you just like speak to us about 
Um, and I know you go in depth into it about the book. So, um, by the way, y'all be sure y'all check the description box and where you can get this book. Where's your tank? It's an amazing book. It's changed my life. But um, talk to us about that experience and um, how it shaped you just as a person in general. Okay. So I think to give it the best um, picture of what my experience was. So I was and still am a daddy's girl through and through. Like if, mm -hmm. if there were a picture of a daddy's girl in the encyclopedia, I am the picture. Like my daddy was my world. I mm -hmm. absolutely thought that it was like God, Jesus, Pearlie Shaw Jr. <laughs> um, to a fault, mind you. And I have had to really grapple with that after his passing. But that was that's how I felt about him growing up. Um, that's how I felt about him, even as an adult woman, um, because he really did provide a really great example of what it meant to be a husband and a um, father and a provider and a man of God. And so growing up because i grew up in a really large family like both of my parents mm -hmm. have a lot of siblings um and their parents had a lot of siblings so interestingly enough death was normal in my family like i at a very young age i would go to funerals on a regular basis so that was very normal i remember there was one year in college I went to so many funerals at one point, my professors were like, okay, we're going to have to start seeing obituaries because you were going home like every month wow. for a funeral. So funerals and death was normal. Even from a spiritual perspective, it was mm. normal. Sickness, on the other hand, and again, this is one of those things that my parents thought they were doing good, but they weren't necessarily doing what was best for me. Sickness, they hid. So my mom had a lot of health issues when I was growing up. She would have seizures. And because of their connection, my dad could always know when it was going to happen. And so he'd like shoo us away. Like we grew up on the same street as his mom, my mom's mom, great aunts and uncles. So he would somehow get us somewhere else right before she would have a seizure. So... I was 14 before the first time that I saw my mom have a seizure. And I remember being like almost traumatized. Like I, I remember being in the room, like just shaking because I was like, oh my God, what is going on? And so after that, no more. And I always had, I was always fearful for whatever reason of sickness. So like people would always joke, even when I became an adult, they were like, now listen, if you sick, do not call Keisha. Like Keisha mm. is the bottom of the list for the people that you need to call <laughs> if you are sick. So my dad was the horse of our family. Like mm. I, he was never sick. Not, I'm talking about not even a cold. And this was a six foot six, big black man. Never saw him sick, ever, um, until his cancer diagnosis. And so his cancer diagnosis was actually about three years before he passed away. And I remember, like, because I'm the baby of the family, everybody, like, sat me down. They were like, Keisha, we've got to tell you something. And I was distraught. Like, mm. I, I could not wrap my head around the strongest person that I know is sick. 
Like everybody else can be sick. And that's really sad to say, but that literally was my mindset. Like anybody else can get sick. He can't get sick. Like, I don't even understand what y'all are telling me right now. So had the cancer diagnosis, went in for a random colonoscopy. Like it really was like my parents' insurance was changing. So the doctor was like, hey, we just need you to go ahead and do this. My dad did it. They said we found cancer. He went in for surgery. They thought they had it removed. He did chemo, all of those things. And we thought he's great. Um, And then about a year, maybe a year and a half later, they were like, no, it's back. And it's like aggressive. And so that his sickness for me was Mm -hmm. the traumatizing part. Like Mm -hmm. I remember even really wrestling with God. And I was just like, I don't understand this and I don't like it. And there was a huge part of me that was being very bratty about it and and immature. I was just like, listen, like why my daddy, why him when he's lived this life and he's done these things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my parents are thinking that they're going to still have, they're going to live there happily ever after until they're like a hundred I don't understand what's happening. And I remember when his second diagnosis came, I very distinctly remember hearing the Holy Spirit say, if I take your daddy, am I still God? And I was like, but it called me to this place of maturity where when I said that, that level that I have had of God, Jesus, Pearly Shaw Jr., I had to recognize his humanity mm-hmm. and I had to recognize that he couldn't be my all because the truth of the matter is mm. at this point in his life, his body was failing him and his body had never failed him in 60 years. Mm. And so um, that was really challenging for me. The sickness part was hard. Not necessarily the death. Interestingly enough, at the very end, um, so I'll give you like a picture of the last three months of my dad's life. Mm-hmm. Um, in September of 2018, I had to look at the tattoos on my arm. I was like, what year was mm-hmm. it? In September of 2018, um, I doted, I, no, I'm sorry, August of 2018. Yeah, August. Um, I donated my kidney Mm. um, for my brother-in-law. Oh, wow. And three weeks later, so this is like what my family's life looked like at the time. Three weeks later, in August, beginning of August, we're celebrating my daddy's 60th birthday party. We're like, he's he's better. He's great. We're going to have him for another 20, 25 years. Um. The latter part of August, I donated my kidney to my bro- for my brother-in-law. So I'm recovering. He's recovering. My sister is like seven months pregnant. Um, my mom, she's my child care. So she's taking care of my kid, my youngest daughter. And my we're thinking my dad is getting better. He goes in for this routine procedure. And stays in the hospital for three weeks. Mm. And his health like spiraled out of control. Like, like we're like, he came in here fine. 
Now you're telling him us like organs are shutting down and he can't have chemo because he's too weak. And we're like, what is happening? And over the course of like a month and a half, his health literally just spiraled, spiraled, spiraled out of control. And so in the middle of that, that's where I'm really having to grapple with how do I take care of myself? when all of these things around me are happening? Mm-hmm. Like, how does my mom take care of herself when all of these things are happening around her? How does my sister, how does my brother-in-law, like all of us were dealing with our own individual stuff mm-hmm. on top of his health spiraling. And so um, it was a lot, but it challenged me to practice what I Like it really challenged me to practice what I preach. So honestly, I think that it was harder dealing with his sickness than his death. Because again, remember from my frame of reference, death was normal. Death was, you know, people, people get to meet Jesus. So that's a good thing. Seeing him, his health spiral was the hardest. And um, one of the beautiful things that I I say to people about my parents' marriage because I always saw my dad as the strong one, again, because his health was always on point. Like, I always saw his, him as a strong one. And one of the things my parents would always say is marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is you give what your spouse doesn't have. So on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. a lot of times it looked like my dad carried more. Like, it was like, okay, well, he carried 70 and my mom only had to carry 30. And he set it up that way. Like he wanted it to be that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And my sister would always take these pictures of my parents. Like they had their routine on Sundays. They would lay in their recliners. They would hold hands. My mom would Mm -hmm. lay on her shoulder. They would take a nap. So she had all these random pictures of them like that over the years. Well, at the end of my dad's life, he had withered away. Like, his strength had left. He just, he couldn't do anything. And all of a sudden that picture shifted. Like now he's laying on her lap, like a baby. Like he had zero to give and she gave 100 Mm. and she gave 100 when it mattered the most because he had nothing. And so he had poured years and years and years into their marriage, years into our family. And when he had nothing left, it was our turn to show up for him. And that's what we did as a family. And I remember the morning that he passed, the day that he passed away that morning, my oldest daughter had an event and we went to lunch and I said to her, I said, Hey, how do you feel about, you know, what's going on with granddaddy? And she was like, mommy, he's just not the same because he wasn't like he, he had mm-hmm. nothing left. And um, she said, he's just not the same. And I said, I know. I said, and the hardest thing that mommy had to do was to say to God, you've either got to heal my daddy or you've got to take them. And I said that to her that afternoon and that night around 530 is when he took his last breath. Wow. Wow. Thank thank you for sharing that. It's very powerful. And um, you said so much. I, I'm really excited to go back and listen to this again, because um, one of the things that really, really stood out to me 
is something that I've had to deal with in process as well with the death of my grandmother. She passed away on my birthday in 2016. And it was in the months and years after that, that I realized that she could not be my everything. Mm-mm. I could not live my life to make my grandmother proud. Mm. I could not live my life for her or for her satisfaction. And that's how I immediately began to live after her death. It was like, I'm going to be a teacher to make my grandmother mm. proud. It's the one thing she always wanted me to do. So here I am in this career. And mind you, I love the kids, but I didn't really want to be a teacher. <laughs> I did not want to be no teacher. Like I had already been through a teacher education program and dropped out of it. So, but this is how I think my grieving process went, you know, because I still held on and I didn't want to let go. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my experience growing up with death was, was very different. You know, it was, this was the first, the, the, the first loss I ever really experienced in life was a major loss. Um, in a traditional sense, um, thinking of a parent, a parents, um, my mom was more of like my father and played more of the father figure role. And my grandmother was more of my actual mother because I didn't because my it. father was actually um, my father was murdered when I was um, about one years old. So um, when you said that you realized you couldn't make him your all anymore, I was like, wow, that's that that that's a big like that was major for me to go through that in therapy, you know, in the years after her passing. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the other things I really love about your book is how um, there's a strategy in here called get bad. And I really love it. Get bad. Um, and for, for those of y'all that don't, I'm gonna give y'all a quick gem because you got to get the book. Um, but basically it means to establish boundaries, ask for what you need, and then to delegate. Uh-huh. And then you shared something that was so powerful um, in talking about the passing of your father in your book, which was that um, it, it, I, I can't remember the exact page, but it was your husband who was calling you and saying, hey, when are you going to come home to to help with the girls, get them for school? And then you said, I'm, I'm not. not. <laughs> and I was I'm like, I was, I'm literally reading a book like, oh. But it was so beautiful to hear like, this is what it's like to enforce a boundary. Yes. And I, I want you to share like, how did you get to that point to where you were like, no, th- this is a boundary I cannot cross. Like, because that's something I struggle with. I know somebody listening struggles with boundaries. Where did you get that from? And like, or share some advice about enforcing boundaries. So a little backstory. One of the reasons that I I advocate so heavily for balance is because I haven't always had it. Um, I used to be the person that looked put together and was a hot heaping mess underneath the surface. And that led to anxiety for me. Um, And after experiencing a a series of anxiety attacks um, a long time ago, back when my oldest daughter was little, like a toddler, and I was in graduate school and doing a lot of other things, um, those anxiety attacks were scary enough for me to make me stop and say, what is going on with my life? Because this can't be it. Like this 
if this mm. cannot be my new normal. I'm not just gonna like snuggle into this and be like, oh, well, I just have anxiety attacks. This is what, what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. It scared me enough to take inventory. And when I did that, I recognized that my life was out of balance. I recognized that I was pouring out way more than I was pouring in. Mm. And so at that time, I learned the gift of no. Like I realized that Keisha saying no benefits everybody. Like saying no allows you to give people your best and not your less, right? Mm. Um, and so, of course, I read some books like Cloud and Townsend write plenty of books about boundaries and I've read them in graduate school, but I really was determined to just live it because I recognized that the more that I said no to people, and said yes to me, mm. I was able to do better for the people that I was serving, whether that be my clients, whether that be in ministry, whether that be my husband, my daughter, because at the time I just had one, whoever it was that I was in relationship with, they got the best of me when I recognized that I had limits. Because I did, mm. right? Yeah. Like, and, and over the course of the last several years, I, my new motto has been, I learned to burn my superwoman cape so that my daughter's never put me on. is where I am. Like, I recognize that, Keisha, you can't do it all. Or at least you can't do it all and do it well, right? Like, you, right, you right. can do 50 things at 2%, or you can do one thing at a time at 100. And so mm. my husband jokes because now he'll be like, I'll be doing something and my girls will be talking to something. He's like, mommy's not paying attention. She can't multitask. And I'll say, it's actually not that I can't. I just choose not to. Like, I don't have to do 50 things at one time. I don't have to pay attention to 8,000. Like, I don't have to and actually expect to be able to do things in excellence. Not mm. even perfection, but just in excellence. And so... It really, all of that was a perfect setup for me being able to say very firmly and strongly to my husband, I ain't come home. That just ain't what I'm about to do. <laughs> because <laughs> I also had become okay with people not being happy about it. Like mm -hmm. boundaries don't make, most people don't jump up for joy. I even tell people, I love boundaries until they're set with me. I don't even like when people tell me now. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You can tell everybody else. You don't get to tell me now. <laughs> I understand that it's not going to necessarily be where people are going to jump up and down and like pat you on the back and be like, I've been waiting on you to tell me no. But I've also just become okay with that because I'm able to see the bigger picture. And I could have gone home and helped my husband take care of our daughters and get them ready for school every day and then rush back home to my parents' house to help take care of my mama and make funeral arrangements. But what that would have done is I would have showed up at my residence with my family angry and bitter and resentful about having to be there or feeling like I had to be there versus just saying, I can't. Mm. I was okay with him not understanding. I was okay with him being upset. And the thing is, you know, that was the first time me or my husband has walked through a parent's death, right? Like um, 
both of his parents are still alive. My mom is still alive, alive. So that was our first time experiencing that together. And I said, by my doing that, I hope that whenever his time comes, he's strong enough to tell me his limits and be like, you know what, Keisha? No, mm -hmm. I can't. And that's okay. And be yeah. okay with if I don't get it. Mm, that's, that's beautiful and it's powerful. Because um, I think a lot of times, and I speak from my own experiences, I was a yes man for a long time. Mm -hmm. I was the person I was doing a hundred things.